Hello, and welcome to The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. Joining me this week is Ari Melber, the host of The Beat on MSNBC, also the network's chief legal analyst, an author, and a lawyer. I really wanted to speak with Ari this week because he notched a pretty impressive milestone in January. His show was the most watched one on MSNBC. He's also turned The Beat into a pretty impressive juggernaut on YouTube to the envy of his cable news peers. I called up Ari last week, right after he returned from Los Angeles where he attended the Grammys, to talk about the success of The Beat, how to make it in cable news, and several of the major legal stories that are in the headlines right now. Ari, thanks so much for coming back on the show. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Last time you were on this show, I don't know if you remember, we were deep in the throes of the COVID pandemic. I asked you what concerts you wanted to go to when things opened back up. And if you'll allow me to ask a follow-up, have you been going to any shows lately? I've been going to shows. Uh, if the Grammys, which have performances, and the Clive Davis party, which had live performances, count, uh, I'm fresh can, off that weekend. I think so. And that was the first time I've actually been to the LA Grammys. So the Clive Davis party is a big tradition. He's actually 90 now, he's been holding that for decades. And so it's this artist pilgrimage. So that was on. Saturday night, and I saw Elvis Costello live, and Cheryl Crow, oh, and Lil Baby, and Lil Wayne, and all the eclectic mix in between. The Grammys, I think people saw, all those performances were amazing. Um, out back in New York, I've seen Phoebe Bridgers at the Brooklyn Bandstand, Very nice. uh, seen some hip-hop. So yeah, I mean, uh, for those of us who love live music, that was one of many uh, sacrifices during that era. How was uh, God did the performance? I know that you're you're a particular fan of that song at the Grammys. <laughs> I am, and you know when God did first dropped, it was in the middle of last year. A DJ Khaled title track, so it was the album album track opener, and that album went number one. So there was clearly the usual Khaled excitement, and it has all these artists on it: Jay Z, my favorite, plus Rick Ross and Lil Wayne. And we did, as you know, a big breakdown on the beat. Uh, about what Jay was saying in the song and the and the verse and how interesting it was as a kind of mix of the DJ Khaled party energy and also pretty conscious deconstruction of America's racist drug war. Mm-hmm. And that was in the first few days it came out. And then it sort of took on a bit of a life of its own uh, in the culture as a song, completely separately. But also that segment was one of the most embraced and most viral segments we've ever done, which we certainly couldn't have known going in, Aiden. But LeBron James, now officially the king, uh, he sent out the link to that MSNBC beat segment. Jay-Z commented online. Then Jay-Z released the audio of the segment as its own new track, Hove Did, which is on streaming now if you find it. So to be completely honest, candid, I've never felt at all tied like that to some piece of music. And then when the Grammys decided to make it the finale, I mean, you could say that I'm a fan. So I'm like, of course they should. But also objectively, you take a step back and say, oh, that's interesting, unusual for those who know rap songs are not usually getting a lot of love in the general song category. They're not usually the finale. Obviously, they didn't have hip hop 50 this year. So, you know, whether we talk about politics, media or culture, there are different ways that things sort of evolve or change up. And that was striking to see as well. 
And I do want to get to actually the success, both of The Beat, your show on MSNBC, online and on television, because I think it's a really interesting case study in where cable news is going and where the news industry more broadly is going. So let's talk about your show. Not only are you the longest host to ever hold down the 6 p.m. time slot on MSNBC, which was once helmed by my boss, Dan Abrams, you've also turned it into a ratings force on MSNBC. Now, bear with me here. I have a few other accolades to run through. The show was the most watched program on MSNBC for the month of January, which, as anyone who follows cable news knows, is a big feat after years of Rachel Maddow's dominance. The show has also found a large audience on YouTube where you recently notched 1 billion streams. So congratulations on all that. Thank you. My question is, what do you think the key is to success now in cable news? Well, the short answer is be honest, be consistent, and be different in interesting, authentic ways. That's the, sort of the short answer. I think the longer answer is the funniest part about this industry, which I've had to learn coming in, is I've been writing for a long time. I have a background in politics and law, but coming into cable news for me was still learning it as a guest and a guest host and adjusting over time is you do need to build yourself and your hard work through time. So if you look at the most watched show on MSNBC, as you said, is The Beat. And uh, to quote Drake, I'm never washed, but I'm not new. Uh, I think the fact that I've built over time with the audience probably helps if I had to guess. If you look at o over at other channels, some of the people who are there, number one, are people who've actually been around for a while. Maybe they're in a certain version of themselves or iteration, but that's a piece of it. I think the MSNBC audience is very thoughtful. You can say, oh, of course, I'm going to shout out the audience. But I think it it's proven to be a very thoughtful audience, uh, certainly uh, people who pay a lot of attention to the news. We have some data that shows they watch more than one thing and read more than one thing. And so that you're, you're dealing with that thoughtful audience over time and, and proving yourself. And so I think that certainly helped. And then as for being different, look, uh, we, would we would be happy being number one no matter what. But I'll be honest with you, I am especially happy that we right now are, are the most watched show across MSNBC or CNN while doing the show our way. Uh, and I, we can talk more about that today, but by our way, I mean having a really broad palette for who comes on, what stories are, trying things differently. And that means everything from when Steve Bannon came on with me was the first time he was on MSNBC. I had Matt Gates on recently, undeniably a newsy guest, but not someone you'll necessarily see across every hour of, of CNN. The artists that we have on are there to talk about their life experience and how that connects. And so the fact that we can do all of that, I mean, I would challenge people to find a show that goes from Bannon to Snoop to Sheryl Crow to Matt Gates to all the lawyers and experts and other people we have on. And that's not reverse engineered like we sat down and said, oh, everyone will love that. Right. We, I think people know, like, especially when it comes to some of the passions, like we just said, this is interesting. Let's try to share it. The, the validation or the audience that comes afterwards even better. I would also say that your show is one of the less opinionated ones on cable news, which makes it somewhat surprising that it is so successful, because usually the bombastic opinion shows are what draws an audience. We've seen that in Fox News primetime, um, on uh, across the other networks, the success of CNN under the Zucker era, 
uh, was largely attributed to the fact that he allowed his anchors on CNN to be a lot more voicey than I think people would typically expect from a, a CNN anchor. What do you think it is about your show? And you said the variety of it, I think, from what I can tell, that's really what you see as the, the, the main success of it. But do you think that there's a value in delivering the news in a way that is not necessarily as opinionated as some of your peers in cable news? Do you think that has contributed to the success at all? It's a great question. I think that while we all know opinion fits into politics and political coverage, uh, and you can have guests on or hosts with strong opinions, and that can be fine as long as it's honest and transparent in the presentation. I think that there are times when some people mistake passion and opinion, and I think they're different. You can be passionately politically opinionated. But you can also have a deep passion uh, that comes through and is not rooted in any partisan lens. So I think our show is very passionate uh, about a whole range of important subjects that we cover, and I hope that comes through. But I think, we, as you said, we definitely do not try to traffic in a partisan or team approach to stuff. So I, I don't know, you know, I don't know exactly how the audience we have and the big ratings we have reflect an appreciation for that precision, or whether it's also possible that people just say, oh, yeah, I feel the energy and the passion, and they maybe don't care or notice that it's perhaps a little less politically partisan opinionated than some other offerings. And again, it's all fine. I mean, this is America. And nothing wrong with people getting a bunch of different views, flip around, look online and make up your own mind, hopefully. But yes, I think we definitely do that precisely. My vibe has always been showing evidence is more powerful than conclusions. And starting the news night with what I personally might think about something is one of the least interesting things to start with. So that's part of how I look at that. One thing that you've been really savvy about is making sure that The Beat is an institution on YouTube. As I mentioned, it recently crossed 1 billion streams. It's, you know, far more watched on YouTube than any other thing on MSNBC. I'd probably bet anything else on cable news. Given streaming seems to be where the cable news industry is going, whether or not you have faith in the long-term prospects of linear Streaming is clearly something where more younger audiences are getting their news and it has, uh, at least I think, a, a brighter future once the powers that be figure out how to really do it well. Was it deliberate to try and bet on YouTube as an avenue for the beat, knowing that for the cable news industry to survive, it has to figure out other places where uh, it can deliver news to an audience? Yes. I and mean, the viewers have made the beat of one of the most watched news shows online, period. The viewers have made the beat one of the most viral for segments, meaning we passed a billion views, which most cable news shows just have never done. Right. But we also see very specific segments that will go viral in the, in the several millions, meaning the demo audience, if you want to think of it that way, or the young streaming audience is triple, quadruple, five times a typical TV news segment and and in total reach would top anyone, including Fox News, which sometimes has a linear advantage 
uh, because something's gone viral. And that means that something that we did a year ago may have what they call that long tail that it's continued to be watched. I think that's gratifying. I have a hardworking team of producers and the whole team we work with. It's gratifying, as you know, if we have a guest on and their segment's doing well. It's not just about stacking some particular number for some particular branding of the show. It's also that guests and others see, oh, this is really relevant. And that's how media works. Because at the end of the day, right. you're trying to reach the audience wherever they may be, not have some antiquated notion of, well, people always used horse and buggies. So horse and buggies are the most important mode of transport. Well, I mean, they had their day and you can still find them in Central Park. But if you want to be open-minded about reality, people will always need to get somewhere if we have people. And people will always want to learn about each other and use media as a method to do so, learn about the world. But how that media evolves uh, is well beyond our control. And I think even giant media companies are finding that. But if you have a great product, if you have something like this really interesting interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I can tell you is one of our viral interviews in the past couple of years, or Rachel Maddow uh, breaking something down in a way that people want to share it. And two weeks later, they're not saying, oh, that's old news. They're saying, you, you know, forwarding it, listen to what Rachel said. So we've always been deliberate about that, but we also think we have a great set of journalism segments and material for that. And then the last example I'll give would be we are very fortunate to work under a great company like NBC Universal, MSNBC, which is everything I've mentioned they're supporting. So the proof's in the pudding and a shout out to being in a company that's that is digitally aligned and that supports the beat and, and everything I'm saying. We also, within the beat, aren't just producing television every night. We do a lot of things that are broader digital products, which then air in part on the show, but the majority of the material airs or streams online. And so a specific example would be, we have a summit series we actually launched during the pandemic where Bill Gates was the first interview. I'm doing a long form digital interview with him that's not tethered by TV, no commercial breaks, etc. We publish the whole thing online. People can see that it is, in that sense, not tied to TV. And then on, on the beat, we air clips. And that's a model where, again, we're, we're not only leaning into it, we're treating it as an advantage. And as you know, especially with big, interesting bookings, some of them respond better to a, a, a real deeper, long conversation than saying, oh, instead of the usual seven-minute segment, you're going to get nine and a half. Well, that's sort of not the best pitch in my view when I'm talking to Snoop or Lil Baby. I sat in their studios. I flew out there. I didn't fly out there for an eight-minute uh, you know, cable segment. I flew out there. We did the whole thing, and it, it flourished in both platforms. It's a smart idea, and I think you know, it's also something that I've seen NBC trying to do with Meet the Press, right, where they're basically trying to make, establish Meet the Press as this broad brand with the show on NBC, uh, a streaming element to it, the online site. Having that broad brand, I think, is a smart way to, to go forward in, in the industry. When you're just looking at the, the competition, the cable news competition, have you learned anything either from the struggles at CNN or the success at Fox News that you can apply to your own show? Or are you really trying to sort of chart your own path and ignore the competition? I mean, I'll tell you, on God... 100. 
I don't watch a lot of the other product and I certainly don't emulate its structure. Okay. And I say that with a hundred percent respect. I mean, there are people who've been working a long time. I always mention you got people who are both in print and TV outlets running around the world risking their lives. So I have the utmost respect. But if you're talking about like how I how I work, I have a team. There are people on the team who definitely keep an eye on what's on TV. I'm not suggesting we are in some monastery avoiding all media. Um, so there's an awareness, but I don't personally, you know, and, and I know your pod kind of digs in with people for those who are interested. I don't personally have all those channels up. I don't at night watch all the channels. Um, it takes for me a giant news event to be flipping around at night. I definitely think I'm good in the amount of media and journalism I consume. <laughs> um, but it's not like you're finding me in the evening later, like sitting with, you know, a whiskey and a cigar, just consuming three more hours of, of uh, evening news. So uh, that's the honest answer on that. I think writ large in terms of the, co- in terms of what competition does, you're not just doing your own thing. It's not poetry, right? Mm. I think a solid poet is not keeping themselves in all the other poetry to figure out how to describe love. I think they're steeping themselves in life. Not that I'm a poetry expert, but that's kind of my gut feeling. Whereas in media, we are, of course, aware of who broke the story, who has a take, what happens later. And so and that's just like, I don't spend all day on, on Mediaite, but I'm aware of Mediaite. And, and when something breaks or what's on the headline, I might see, right? So, right. And you guys work hard on your product. So I, I do think people are aware in a broad sense of the competition and who's getting interviews. Um, but when you talk about, I think, the apt point you made about how in this environment, larger brands and clear journalistic lanes will stand out and become sort of their own destination. I mean, I think that also is a product of competition because there's far less of a stranglehold on any of this, which means that you can't just sit on the idea that you have a press pass or you have access to the pool feed or sir, or even access to uh, politician interviews, and that somehow is enough to say that you're the news and nobody else is. Everyone with a phone can claim that they have a piece of the news. Maybe they didn't fact check it. Maybe they don't go through the rigorous process, but they can still say, well, they have the video of the day or they have the opinion of the day. And I think that's fine. I think our job is to aim higher than what a solo outfit might do. And as you say, if you have a brand where people say, oh, the beat is open-minded, it's about news law, politics and culture, Uh, it brings in things that when I feel like I might disagree with some of it, I don't resent it because I know that they're going to bring in a whole range of things that we've built that brand up so that one viewing of the beat might make some people more uncomfortable than they're used to intellectually, but 10 or 20 viewings makes them go, oh, these guys are shooting for the truth. Mm. This isn't just like one angle. So when you say that that might emerge as a brand, yeah, I think that's part of what works today. I want to talk about your interviews on the beat. You've had some great newsmaking interviews lately with pro-Trump Republicans like Matt Gates and obviously your repeated interviews last year with Peter Navarro. A lot of cable news hosts prefer to only have guests on air that they agree with. Do you disagree with that approach? Do you think that that's a bad way to approach news? I'm not capping, as you say. I know mm. that you always talk about capping, Aiden, because I, I know that you're uh, you know, hip to the, to the slang. I'm not capping or BSing about this. I actually think that there's value in hearing out a range of sides and that if you never hear out the other other whatever what you perceive as the other side you may not even know where the perception ends 
and the misperception begins. Or challenge your own beliefs, I think. Exactly. Exactly. Because in hearing it, you say, oh, well, I understand now a part of that. Or, oh, I think right. that's interesting to know that's different than the, how it was characterized, even though they're still not your favorite. So I think it's a great way to learn about the world. I think it is part of the polarized era we're in. It's not just the press, but the larger political environment where politicians don't even want to be seen always meeting each other. Some Republicans are saying they won't go to the Biden White House. Some Democrats in office said that, you know, they viewed Trump as so horrific or oppositional that they wouldn't want to talk to him or his aides. We all understand how people do their political jobs, but I think it's fair to say that if your job is to also vote and negotiate a budget, then you should be strong enough to do that and then walk out, you know, have the meeting and walk out and do whatever you're going to do. The idea that even the meeting itself has become controversial or impossible to do, that that's the era we're in. And so the press, which to most politicians is less essential than passing a budget, I mean, that's just a fact, is something that many can completely jump over. I mean, there are people, certainly Mitch McConnell, Jim Jordan, you know, Steve Scalise, that we've invited on the show repeatedly. They've never come on. They have an open invite. So I just think that, that it's better to hear from them and it's better for the viewers and citizenry to hear directly from them. And then secondarily, if, as you say, everyone's in their own corners, if the only time you hear Mitch McConnell is in a kind of a, a safe space interview, which is, I guess, a little bit of a trigger warning snowflake attitude, as they would say, then we don't get to other ways. So to give a specific example, there had been many articles about whether there was a secret side deal that was struck between the so-called rebels, Gates, and Speaker McCarthy, but it had not been confirmed. Indeed, when we were prepping the interview, there were print articles in Politico and elsewhere that said, maybe there's a side deal, but other Republicans say that that's been exaggerated. It had not been answered by a principle. And Live on TV, Gates, I would say, at first sort of seemed to dodge and say, well, I'm telling you what the deal is. But then when pressed, he conceded there was a written deal described as four pages, and he had seen it, and it did provide extra secret concessions beyond the rules package. That was news. We broke that news through the interview process. And then when I said, okay, well, you talked about transparency for government FBI. Will you release this copy? Then he asserted that he'd lost the copy. He was proud of it, he said, but he didn't save it. People can judge the veracity or the credibility of that, but all of that came from that type of interview. He had not been pressed in several other interviews on Fox uh, about any of that. Right. That's whenever I hear the argument that you should just not invite Republicans on air. It's made a lot by, by liberals and very often hosts get attacked for, you know, particularly the Sunday show hosts when they have on Republicans. And uh, I'm very sympathetic to the counter argument that if you do not have these people on air, then you're creating these two different media silos where there's no accountability and there's no avenue to challenge the information that they're putting out there. Speaking of those media silos, I, I want to talk about the January 6th House Select Committee investigation. Mm -hmm. They put out a report recently. You wrote an introduction for one of the publications of that. There has been a lot of chatter about whether or not Trump will face any consequences for the riot. And he's tied up in a, kind of a dizzying quantity of cases right now, prosecutions in different states. Do you see any of those cases posing actual legal peril to him? 
It's a great question, Aiden. It's a, I think the key legal and potentially political question of this coming year. Um, in other words, if you use a practical lens and calendar by, say, the beginning of what we consider the the primaries, there's only you know you got about ten months here where there's either going to be action or not, and no right. action means oh technically it could happen later, but practically it probably won't. And so I think you've asked the core question. I don't have inside intel on that. If I have a scoop like that, you can bet it would be on the beat if we had two sources telling us that there was or wasn't going to be, for example, charges against Trump. What I can tell you is, based on precedent and the available public evidence, which could change, it currently looks unlikely that the prosecutors in the position to do it in Georgia and uh, Special Counsel Smith are approaching currently a case that indicts Donald Trump. The reason we see that is because the main known and viable charges would relate to a conspiracy to defraud the United States or commit an election crime. Um, I'm mentioning both federal and state lanes there. If people recall the recent Uh, sedition trials. They were all sedition conspiracies, meaning in plain English, more than one person accused of working together, even on a incomplete or failed crime. In that case, sedition. In this case, something about the election. Now, you can probably see where I'm going, because I like to be as clear as possible. We have not seen Trump aides or top allies in the campaign or government indicted in Georgia or by Jack Smith. So you would have to do those first. There still might be considered difficult, depending on the evidence. And then the next move or question would be, do you have enough evidence from those charges and cases to indict former President Trump as a co-conspirator or in the classic sort of mafia model do you get more cooperation from one of those people that strengthens the case against the top, which is often uh, the harder case to make for all the obvious reasons? So when I tell you that those are two or three steps and none of them have been taken, either they're not on their way to doing it or they're late, it's been two years, and there's some special process whereby late, they do all of it slammed together and it happens. And then somebody calls up and says, Ari was wrong on Aiden's podcast. And that's possible. But I would say it is not likely and it's not the traditional road to a conspiracy indictment of this nature. And so in closing, I mean, if you have more uh, questions, I'll answer. But in closing to this topic, I would say, you know, you don't see Mark Meadows, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani indicted. And that would be the start of what would still, I think, be a difficult process. So from all appearances, the walls are not, in fact, closing in at this time. Not on, <laughs> Yeah, well, no. <laughs> not on that theory of the case. And right. it may very well be that, and again, I have to be very precise here because I don't want to prejudice any of these individuals. And even if indicted, they would be legally presumed innocent and everyone gets their day. But for example, people like Mr. Giuliani and Mr. Meadows, There's overwhelming evidence that they defied lawful investigations. In Mr. Giuliani's case, uh, that he, there's overwhelming evidence that he completely breached his binding legal obligations as a lawyer. He cannot 
currently practice law for that reason. It's suspended and it might ultimately be completely taken out. That, that's a big deal. And by the way, if you're in the mid-career and you lose your law license, that's a huge deal for someone, even if people want greater justice. So there's certainly things that look bad against them. What there's not two years later are indictments. And Georgia has talked, the Georgia DA in Fulton County, DA Willis has talked about making those moves, but they have not yet been made. Just to go back to the House Select Committee, I think one of the most astonishing things about the Trump era is that you have all this staggering evidence of craziness. You know, you had the president of the United States, who was the former host of The Apprentice, invented a theory that the election was stolen from him, and that convinced a mob of his fans to ransack the Capitol. A couple of people died in the process. Somehow that's only seen by half the country probably a little bit more, but a, a, a significant portion of the country does not see that as a bad thing. Do you worry that from a media perspective and from just an information perspective that we are so siloed and divided as to be broken? Yes, I worry about that. Uh, as mentioned, there's a bit of a chicken and egg. In other words, a lot more people do what they want to do and talk to who they want to talk to without consulting the media on a regular basis, or what we would especially call journalism. So if you're trying to analyze it, that speaks to why, for at least a huge number of people, it is not necessarily driven by media. It may be reinforced, but they're out there doing what they're doing, right? And when, we, when they're using the internet to talk to each other, I, I don't necessarily call that media. I would call that communications technology, right? Then you have a media that in some places may reinforce that, and a, and a media that may polarize where rather than seeing democracy as a clash between ideas and opponents, it's seen as this good and evil clash between the right and wrong, just and unjust, legitimate and illegitimate factions. And so while I'm not into both sidesism, I think you have to be precise. I'm sure you could certainly find examples that associate with the Democratic Party and dehumanize or attack um, what are supposed to be opponents within a democracy. Uh, having said that, the, the FBI's numbers show a lot more political violence and domestic terrorism and hate emanating from the right, not the left, as a factual law enforcement matter. So, you know, you can get into all the details, but I would emphasize that the environment and the people uh, are what's driving this first, and then the media fits in. And that's not to exempt the media. It's just my honest best take on the numbers of it, you know. And the media has a great role in sorting and filtering uh, debate. And you, know, you can look at the political science studies on that. But at the end of the day, you've got many, many tens of millions of people who aren't checking in with journalism at all. And a bunch of them were at the Capitol. So I think it's complicated. But yes, I think the media has got to be very conscious of that problem and the problem of degree. It's not good enough for us to say, well, we didn't directly tell anyone to go break the law. So we're not part of the problem. No, we might be uh, uh, contributing in other insidious or subtle ways. And, and, and I'll only speak for myself because I'm not, of course, throwing any stones here, but uh, I'm, in my own daily work and with my team, we talk about issues like that a lot and how to make sure, wait, is this fair? And is this going to come off fair? Is this going to be misconstrued? Is it a cheap shot? You know, there's room for culture jokes, fun. I mean, I don't think my show's to so buttoned up, um, but we're not, we're certainly trying to be aware of not inadvertently or somehow demeaning and dehumanizing um, based on anything, including ideology. Dehumanizing someone based on their own good faith belief is just another type of discrimination. And I think one avenue for recourse against the kind of misinformation that leads to something like 
the January 6th attack. From a legal perspective, this, this defamation lawsuit against Fox News, actually, there's two defamation lawsuits against Fox News uh, and other con- uh, conservative media outlets by Dominion and Smartmatic, the two voting uh, systems companies. Do you think that those lawsuits actually have a chance against Fox? I know that the bar for defamation in the United States is a really high one. Yeah, those are important suits. We've covered them on the beat. Uh, that combined with the Alex Jones litigation shows that while you're right, legally, it's a very high bar. It's not an impossible bar, uh, especially if you have evidence, internal contemporaneous evidence like emails or testimony about how people knew something was false and pushed it anyway with malice, with a kind of an axe to grind. And in the, in the Jones case, that was that was abundantly proven. Uh, the Fox case is, as you mentioned, ongoing, although it is past the initial hurdles. And that's why top anchors and Rupert Murdoch have have sat for depositions. I think, as always, in fairness, Fox is entitled to make its defense and try to argue that news gathering, as we were just discussing earlier, does involve incorporating and sometimes, yes, broadcasting, hopefully responsibly, claims that either may not be true or are definitely not true at the time. That's part of their defense, and they have every right to make it. The problem for them legally is the allegation supported, at least by, shall we say, some evidence, that some of their folks knew at the time it was false and doubled down. That would be a big problem. And then you get into what always resolves tough cases, which is, well, what were you trying to do? Um, Because, you know, if you walk outside and slip and fall on someone, that's a very different situation than if you jump on them. Uh, They might be bruised either way. So the law cares a lot about what your actual intent was. And I think that's where that case will turn on. So I've covered that case. I want to be fair about the fact that that's an open case with two sides. But but I do think that the defamation argument is strong if they can really show that people knowingly were pushing the falsehood. And that's really bad because it does connect back to the insurrection and everything else. People believe some of what they're hearing, especially in the more traditional long-running outlets. Um, and there's a big difference between saying you think Joe Biden is a poor-performing, disappointing president. You have every right to say that as strongly as you can. The difference between saying that and lying about the election outcome, which is a fact, and lying about it in a way that leads to other greater harm. And that's not uh, properly understood. I don't think that's journalism. On the other hand, do you worry at all about the consequences that a case like this might have for First Amendment protections of the media? You know, as a, as a journalist, it feels almost unnatural to root for a private company like the media and Smartmatic against a, a news outlet. It's a great question, Aiden. I think I think people, if you look at it closely, I think it's tough because right. just as we talk about in the social media and internet context, you might find the one item that you really, really disagree with, right? Either because you're like, how could they tweet that Adele is better than Beyonce? Of course, Beyonce is better. No one should ever be allowed to tweet that, right? Or something, a more serious version. But anyone, depending on your passion point, can feel that way, you know? But then when you say, wait, some special Politburo is going to decide who can tweet what? And is that really fair? And yes, we can all come up with extreme examples, fire in the theater. But as soon as you get away from the obvious ones, yelling, fire, you know, yelling, shouting fire in a crowded theater, you get to the other ones and they fall apart. And so I think likewise, if you care about free speech and journalism, and I used to practice First Amendment law, you're definitely worried about the overuse of defamation as a chilling effect. I think if they can prove that it was deliberate lies about something as this important, 
I don't necessarily think that would have a huge chilling effect on a lot of other journalists. I think it would probably be read as a vindication of the fact that there is a line somewhere. Now, I don't think the line should ever be around, you know, democracy evaluation. In other words, we don't want to see a politician, say Biden, you know, suing Fox or whomever. I'm not trying to pick anybody out and say, you said I was a terrible president for the economy, but I can prove why I say I'm good for the economy and you should have you should be sanctioned. I don't think that's good. I think while you can have facts about the economy, I think if somebody wants to make their sort of evaluation or opinion, that's got to be pretty widely protected. But again, when you're talking about the actual resolution of the election and it was resolved and you're just allegedly lying about it, I do think that's not really in the zone of the type of speech that we're trying so hard to protect. Uh, But I am sympathetic to at least those concerns. For sure. Ari, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, and I really appreciate all the smart and thoughtful questions uh, and chopping it up with you and shout out to your viewers and readers and let's do it again sometime. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Ari Melber on BDI.com.